Good morning, and you're listening to North by Northeast, conversations that matter to Northeast Texas. I'm Mark Haslett. We just heard an episode of NPR's podcast, Code Switch. That was from March of 2018. The title of that episode, Why Shouldn't We Pay Student-Athletes? With the state of California recently passing legislation that could make such compensation legal in a few years, that question is becoming ever more timely on our nation's campuses and in our country in general. College football and men's college basketball in the United States are unique in the world and that they are just as popular as pro sports. Now, many other countries, of course, most have college sports in some form, but the U.S. culture of college sports fandom stands apart from the rest of the world. And while there's a case to be made that women's basketball, college baseball, and college softball do have a high profile, the economic impact of NCAA football and men's basketball really stands alone. Major League Baseball and the National Hockey League have their own minor league systems, but the NFL and the NBA basically use our nation's universities as their developmental system. These sports are big. In some parts of the country, particularly the South and the Midwest, college football and college hoops are more popular than pro sports. But the student-athletes who play these sports, along with student-athletes and other programs, are forbidden from getting any financial compensation from their participation in this big-money cultural phenomenon. Should they be able to? This morning, we'll visit that question, and we're joined by... Dr. Courtney Flowers from Texas Southern University. Down there, she's Associate Professor of Sport Management in Texas Southern's Department of Health, Kinesiology, and Sports Studies. And we also have uh, Jasmine Baker. She's a Dallas-area sports journalist and also a Texas A&M University Commerce alumna. And we're talking with both of them by phone. So good morning. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Jasmine. Good morning, Dr. Flowers. Thank you for having me on, Mark. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, sorry y'all couldn't be here in person, but we do understand uh, Jasmine's down in the Dallas area and Dr. Flowers is in Houston. And we're going to begin with Dr. Flowers. And uh, we were visiting a little bit briefly before the program began. And you told me that you had not heard that particular episode of Code Switch, but you were listening in uh, during the first half hour. So tell me, what were your reactions to the program? Um, I'll be honest. uh, Edo Banking case is something I've been following uh, pretty much as long as it it began. It really opened the doors and was the first time that we really saw, you know, the idea of student-athletes being paid. Moreover, it gave us a notion of likeness, and it really opened up the doors to really help us understand exactly what likeness is. And so as Ed spoke in a documentary, he said he was looking at a video game, and even though his name wasn't there, his face wasn't there, he knew from that jump shot, that unique style of his, that that was him. African-American man. He knew his players, the other guys that were on the team. And so his likeness was basically being sold, and he didn't see a penny from that. That really opened the doors for student-athletes to really understand exactly what they're signing away when they join the NC2A. So, Jasmine, you were listening in as well. Your thoughts? I couldn't agree more. I've been following the case as well, and 
I know that so many student athletes, A, need to thank Mr. O'Bannon and need to make sure that they understand the, the gravity of what he was fighting for, especially African-American student athletes, um, because, you know, even when you look at the ramifications as far as when it comes to female athletes and Title IX and how this all affects as far as that goes, because I mean, most of them, when you really think about it, their likelihood of their even their career, it really is the prime is their college years for most female athletes. So it's necessary that that you have acts like the the Fair Play Act that they have this as far as their career is concerned because, you know, as we know, it's very limited as far as professional sports for women in this country goes. But, you know, not shocking to hear the racial implications as far as the um, case when, as far as the, uh, the, the issue at hand even goes. There are some nuances to this issue, and one of them is that there's an obvious distinction between players being compensated for their likeness being used uh, in video games or perhaps their name on jerseys and other merchandise and student athletes actually receiving some sort of stipend from the university. And so, Dr. Flowers, when you're talking with folks about this issue and someone talks about student athletes being paid, uh, do you find that you're having to make this distinction? And how do you present that to people when you're talking about it with folks who aren't very familiar with this issue? Yeah. One of the key things when we're talking about pay for play, it's two separate issues. When we were looking at the Ed O'Banion case, we're talking about something that's really embedded in the universities. And so we're talking about universities selling uh, jerseys uh, with sometimes with players' names on it. We're talking about uh, student athletes being asked to attend uh, alumni's weddings because they're the star athlete and universities are seeing you upwards to a couple thousand dollars just for an appearance. We're looking at um, the universities pretty much like we saw with EA Sports with the Ed O'Banion case, receiving money based on that kid's skill, based on their name, and based on altogether that likeness. Now, what we saw, well, what we're seeing with the California bill is a little bit different because the California bill is taking the whole idea of pay outside of the universities. So this act is basically stating that we're going to allow California student-athletes, and now we see Florida as well has joined. We've seen pretty much everybody um, is joining the bandwagon of this. Uh, I, I don't see Texas following fairly soon, so <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> uh, but we're seeing a lot of uh, states basically stand up and say, hey, you know what? Student-athletes should have an opportunity outside of the university to have an agent, to be able to have a YouTube channel, which we saw come out of UC, uh, University of, uh, I'm going to say it was uh, Central Florida, where the kicker had a YouTube channel and basically had to choose between being a student athlete or receiving extreme amount of revenue from his YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so it, we're looking at that back and forth. When I'm looking, when I'm talking to somebody in regards to student pay, there's a couple things that you have to really come into play. Number one, 
what exactly is the scholarship covering? And then also understanding that not everybody that's sitting on the bench or that's playing is actually on scholarship. Some of those kids are walking, some of those kids are not financially benefiting. And so being able to balance out the kids that are benefiting from scholarship and actually aren't is a key in that as well. One of the things that we saw come out of Northwestern, because we saw huge undertaking with those football players who are trying to be unionized is the whole idea of the medical issue. And so who pays for the medical issues or the problems that these athletes actually go through? And even what we saw with that case, afterwards, once you leave that university, who's paying for your medical issues? Because obviously, as we see with the rise of concussions right now, we're knowing that a lot of those issues occur after years and years afterwards. So who pays for all of that? And so when we have that, that idea of really understanding pay for play, we have to bring all of those in to truly understand the essence of what we're debating. One of the aspects of this that gets discussed is the relationship between uh, compensation and the effect that it would have on Title IX. There are some people who say that it would have a negative impact. There are some people who say that it would have uh, a net no impact. So uh, I'm going to leave that open for either one of y'all if y'all would like to speak about the relationship between this and women's sports because, again, the biggest money-making sports are uh, football and men's basketball, although, you know, women's uh, basketball is, is popular and softball is popular. The two biggest money makers are college football and men's hoops. So what would be the relationship between a change in the rules for compensation and the, the effect it would have on women's student athletes? I, I definitely want to hear from Dr. Flowers for okay, sure. Perfect. A, I was yielding to you because I felt like I, I answered a little bit too much. <laughs> no, we got, we got plenty I'm of time. I'm going to jump in. I'm going to jump in on that one. Uh, Go ahead. That's obviously uh, one of the main questions that I'm asked, especially right now with the California bill, is what impact will that have on Title IX? I see this this bill coming out of California as a way to finally balance gender equity. What the bill does is just like a male that's on the football team, it also gives a female on the softball team an opportunity to reach out for a sports agent to kind of guide her career. Just like a man on the men's basketball team, this bill will give a female, a woman's golfer, an opportunity to go out and get a sponsorship deal. That's something that I believe, my opinion, we're not going to see in a lifetime with the NC2A. We know that currently right now, there are no institutions that are in compliance with Title IX. That is a huge issue. There are no institutions that can say that they have equitable facilities. We're seeing numerous cases that are coming out in regards to softball and just the balance of inequity between baseball facilities and softball facilities, baseball equipment and softball equipment. It's, it's crazy that even though Title IX was enacted in 1972, we're still rows and rows away from equity. Has it provided opportunity for women? Oh, undoubtedly, it has. We see huge increases in participation. But even in that, there have been some challenges for African-American women where Title IX has created some barriers. This case coming out of California will ease, if you will, that balance of gender equity and finally allow females just like men 
some of those opportunities for financial compensation. I mentioned too that the NCAA does it does have the opportunity to they also have the opportunity to change any bylaws or revise any bylaws that could ultimately also affect Title IX in the long run because one thing you have to consider is that this is a state issue at this point and you kind of want to run you basically don't want to run into a problem where for example if athlete A, the star basketball player, he's getting paid $100,000 to be in a commercial. Well, by a booster, for example, is that going to take away from the general athlete athletic fund or however the funds are set up for athletes at a particular university? Is that going to take away from any women's funds? Um, you, you also worry about that with any other deserving student athlete at the university. Does it take away from that? Because now they're no longer giving that money to a general. They're no longer be, being a booster, but they're just paying for certain athletes at a particular university. You do also, I guess you, you throw caution to the wind at that point, but, um, I, couldn't agree more with your point um, as far as the opportunities definitely setting up for a lot of female athletes. Um, like I said earlier, it essentially is their, their prime years, and a lot of these women are going overseas to play after they're done. And luckily, a lot of these women do have access to um, health care overseas, but they, you know, obviously they take better care of their, their athletes overseas, female athletes overseas than they do here. And I find that the whole situation is almost like a microcosm of how we treat women in general in America. So this is, none of this is surprising when you kind of look at the system and the way it's set up in, in college athletics. None of this is, is mind boggling to definitely either one of us. Jasmine, you're an alumna of Texas A&M University Commerce. Uh, the Lions compete in NCAA Division II. Uh, should we be concerned about the effect that compensation for student-athletes would have on smaller schools? Uh, the NCAA, and again, you could easily say that they might be disingenuous with the argument that they would make here, but the NCAA has said that if we were to allow compensation, it would increase the gap between the haves and the have-nots, and it would have uh, a negative effect on the competitiveness that you find in college sports. So would this create a situation where there would be even less incentive for student-athletes who had talent to attend a university like A&M Commerce or other D2 schools or D3 schools? I think it already, that, that, I think that already exists. Um, You know, a lot of, a lot of, not saying all, but you do have a lot of transfers from big division one schools where who who didn't pick A&M Commerce first. That's just the reality of it because you do have the haves and the have nots of so many big division one schools in the state of Texas who have the ridiculous facilities. We know a lot of the players are being paid at some of these schools, whether it's above board or under. And so, you know, the glitz and glamour is at all the other schools. And sometimes it just doesn't work out, and now they're back here. You know, now they're at a Division two school, or some have decided to stay close to home, whatever the reason, you know, like a Division two school. So I think that already exists. But I think you bring up a really good point when you ask about this, because one thing I – got to thinking about was how is this going to affect 
states in general and who's going to are we going to see a shift in terms of recruiting because we know this is going to affect recruiting and it's surprising to not see texas already kind of having a bill ready it's compared to for example major recruiting states like florida illinois new york pennsylvania ohio big football states big recruiting football basketball states that already have these bills either um, on the floor, about to hit the floor. And, you know, you're kind of left wondering when, you know, uh, you've had Jimbo Fisher and Tom Herman have already discussed this, um, and they've been very vague. Although Tom Herman, University of Texas head coach, he's already expressed being pro-athlete at this point, though he's been vague since he's, he's gotten to the University of Texas in the past. That's been his stance. So, I think that, like I said, this already being in place is already affecting the A&M commerce of the world. But with the University excuse me, with the state of Texas, because you have such a large pool to pull from, I don't think A&M commerce suffers. But I think a JUCO in New Mexico might if they don't have anything in place. Dr. Flowers, uh, I'd like to ask you uh, what in – the compensation proposals seems to be weakest. Uh, if if there is a good case to be made for allowing athletes to be compensated for things such as their likeness being used in video games or being sold on merchandise, is there a lurking problem there that opponents of compensation could use to discredit the entire proposal? I think uh, when we're looking specifically at the Ed O'Banion case and we're talking about universities actually setting the bill um, to pay for for student-athletes' pay, which is outside of the California Fair Pay Play Act, when we're looking at the universities setting the bill, the biggest issue that we're going to be challenged with is that uproots the NC2A. So the NC2A now has to reform because it's built on the idea that student-athletes are amateurs. Everything in NC2A rulebook goes back to that. And so the biggest part that opponents will have to actually pay student-athletes is that that then, uh, for lack of a better term, kills the NC2A. It ceases to exist. And so the way that we recruit, the way that student-athletes are receiving scholarship funds, the way that we have policies and procedures, all of that changes. And so this totally switches, if you will, how we typically see or deem college athletics, how the coaches are being paid, how coaches get benefits for um, their student athletes and their teams actually reaching an academic status. All of that changes. And so because it's so far-fetched, we know the NC2A structure. We're comfortable, unfortunately, in the essence of it. It seems like it's a unicorn in a room sometimes when we have these discussions. Again, the California Act is one that's a little bit easier for us because it doesn't touch the existence of the NC2A. The NC2A is still able to kind of keep going with normal procedures. And even with them coming out and stating, you know, hey, California, if you guys really enact this in 2023, we're going to revisit 
your membership status. It may be no longer California schools are eligible to play under NC2A. So when we see that sort of banner, we see that obviously the NC2A knows we have to reform. There has to be some sort of change. But opponents to this will say, if we change the NC2A, what? We have to replace it with something. We have to have some sort of rules and regulations. And so uprooting it at its existence and at its root may not be the right way. I don't agree, but (laughs) a lot of opponents would say that. Are there any lessons to be learned from what happened with the Olympics? Uh, Because, of course, for many decades, the Olympics... Uh, held fast to a very narrow definition of amateurism, and now you have situations where uh, pro athletes are able to play in the Olympics. So could the NCAA uh, follow uh, the Olympics in evolving and changing to adapt to uh, the economic realities uh, that's, that, uh, you know, that's their context? Or are the two organizations so very different in their mission and so very different in what they do that there really aren't many parallels to be drawn. I think there are definitely some parallels there. Even with the California bill, some people have even coined it saying that it's it's following or mirroring, if you will, the Olympic model. Um, The biggest thing is getting the NC2A to understand that Yes, we're not saying that the whole system is dead, but there has to be some drastic changes. Unfortunately, we're talking about, and this is oxymoron, uh, we're talking about a nonprofit that is making over a billion dollars. And so when you're profiting over a billion dollars, you don't really want to seek change because it's working for you. It's working for those coaches. It's working for Mark Emmert. And so to make those changes means that you're going to lose profits. We're talking about a system that benefits off of men's basketball because of the uh, Turner Broadcasting track, TV track. That's where they get the majority of their, their money. 80% comes just from that. And so do they really want to change that structure? Do they really want to use that, lose that revenue? I think that's the issue. That change comes at a financial burden for people who've been making millions and billions of dollars over years. And so it's really hard to see. I think with the Olympics, because it was a larger platform, you're talking about nations coming together and making change in unison. It's maybe easier. It's a lot smaller scale. We have the Power Five that are basically running everything. And so it's easier to kind of keep that change close when it's less people in the room, less power, less people to uh, debate with. Um, Sometimes when it's on a larger scale, global scale, and a lot of people are making a change, it's a little bit more difficult to kind of keep that business as usual. We've been visiting with Dr. Courtney Flowers of Texas Southern University. She's Associate Professor of Sports Management at Texas Southern, and also uh, Jasmine Baker, sports journalist, from the Dallas area and also a graduate of Texas A&M University Commerce on the topic of compensating NCAA athletes. We're going to be hearing much more about this topic over the next couple of years. You've been listening to North by Northeast, conversations that matter to Northeast Texas. I'm your host, Mark Haslett. Thanks for joining us. And as always, later today, you can find 
a web post featuring audio from today's broadcast at our website, ketr.org. You're with listener-supported radio for Northeast Texas. This is 88.9 KETR in Commerce. Join us at this time next week, 9 o'clock on Friday, for another broadcast of North by Northeast, Conversations That Matter to Northeast Texas. Up next, it's the Texas Standard, the national news show of Texas broadcast live from Austin. You can hear it weekdays on KETR at 10.00.